Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, good evening, dear friends, colleagues, fans, no matter where you are and uh, what time you're listening. Welcome back to Voices of the Sacred Feminine. And if uh, you're here listening live, you know it is Wednesday at 11 o'clock. And uh, we talk about lots of values under the goddess umbrella here. And in March, uh, one of the topics we have been talking about is empathy. And as we close out the month, uh, just a few more quotes on the topic. For instance, Odile Remert says about empathy, uh, she compares the difference between empathy, sympathy, and compassion and says if someone was stuck in a quagmire, sympathy would be sitting on the side feeling sorry for them. Empathy would be getting into the quagmire with them and trying to find a way out for both of you. Compassion would be keeping your feet on solid ground and staying in a state of love while you reach out a hand or branch to help them get out. Leo Bescagula said, too often we underestimate the power of a touch, a smile, a kind word, a listening ear, an honest compliment, or the smallest act of caring, all of which have the potential to turn a life around. And Henry David Thoreau said, could a greater miracle take place than for us to look through each other's eye for an instant? Well, those are some thoughts on empathy. And today, uh, I will be discussing with my guest, Reverend Matthew Fox's life work. We're going to be talking about uh, creation spirituality, and uh, that has a lot of road to cover. We'll delve into what it is, as well as uh, possibly comparing being religious versus spiritual. I'll know you want to hear his view on uh, the nature of... um, evil and angels, as well as some scientific research proving angels are real, uh, as well as Matthew's own personal experience with angels. Uh, We'll talk about creativity as a power of the universe and the key to our genius, as well as cosmic masses. Uh, I hope there's time for us to get into all of that. And uh, don't forget, um, after the interview, we are on port four of uh, Carol Chris's important essay, Why Women Need the Goddess. 
And I'd say, you know, this extends beyond just women. So uh, if you've been listening for the last uh, few weeks, uh, this is the end of that series, and it's part four. So stick with me to the end, and um, you will definitely be hearing about that and, and a few other things that are coming up. Uh, but before we start the interview, if um, you haven't heard about Reverend Matthew Fox, uh, let me tell you a bit more about him before we start our chat. Uh, he's a Ph.D. author, theologian, uh, activist priest, and he's been calling people of spirit and conscious into the creation spirituality lineage for over 50 years. His 38 books, lectures, retreats, and innovative education models have ignited an international movement to awaken people to be mystics and prophets, uh, contemplative activists who honor and defend the earth and work for justice. Seeking to establish a new pedagogy, uh, help me there, Matthew. Pedagogy. <laughs> uh, for learn pedagogy. Thank you for learning spirituality that was grounded in an effort to reawaken the West to its own mystical traditions and such figures as Hildegard of Bingen, Meister Eckhart, and the mysticism of Thomas Aquinas, as well as interacting with contemporary scientists who are also mystics. Fox founded the University of Creation Spirituality. His recent projects include Order of the Sacred Earth and Daily Meditations with Matthew Fox, as well as the Cosmic Mass. And he has a particularly relevant um, meditation today uh, at his Daily Meditations with uh, Matthew Fox. And you can find it actually at uh, www.dailymeditationswithmatthewfox.org. Uh, Matthew, did you want to say something about that uh, before we? talk about creation spirituality well um, good morning um, Karen it's good to be with you again yes um, I did address in this morning's um, meditation the terrible um, uh, killing uh, still another one at school in Nashville a day or two ago um, <clears throat> and I've, I've received quite a lot of uh, support to what I was saying and um, trying to put it into the context of both our political uh, struggles at this time in in our country, but also the, the bigger picture of how uh, we cannot talk about parents' rights without talking about the right of parents welcoming their children home safely from school every day. So um, there's a lot of issues that are rising, I think, in people's minds and hearts because of that horrible thing, including the fact that America is 5% of the world's population, but we possess 50% of the world's guns, 50%, yet we're only 5% of the world's population. So something is, is uh, off balance. <clears throat> Well, well, yeah, and when you think about, um, you know, what we hear in the news, you know, some of the, uh, you know, Republicans talk about uh, they want parents' rights to choose books and they want to ban, um, uh, you know, uh, drag shows because they want to protect the children, uh, but yet, um, you know, they, they, they don't care about guns. I mean, it's just so such hypocrisy. Uh, I, I mean, it, it's really, it, it just, 
defies all credulity, you know. Um, it, it, yeah. I, I don't know. There, there's To continue to buy into that, you, you've just lost uh, your entire ability uh, to do any critical thinking at all, I think. Well, I couldn't agree more. And then another one of their shibboleths is um, that they are pro-life, but to be pro-life and to allow um, uh, weapons that are designed for soldiers to be bought on the street by anybody and carried wherever they want, etc. That's it's not exactly pro-life when parents cannot be secure that their kids are going to come home from school every day safely. Right, right. Well, I don't know. I, I kind of feel like after January 6th, um, I, I, I look at uh, the, the whole um, struggle on their part to have, uh, you know, these mountains of uh, guns and ammunition in their closets. Uh, I, I really see it much differently than I used to. Um, you know, I, I really feel like with the, the militias that tripled after Obama got into office and, you know, everything that's happened recently, um, you know, this isn't just about people protecting themselves. You know, this is really about something else. And um, I, I don't know, it, it's become clearer to me anyway that, uh, you know, this isn't about hunting and, um, and if someone breaks into your home, um, you know, this this is really about, I think, Christian nationalism. And I, I wonder if you have a, any thoughts about that. Well, I think, you're, I think you're absolutely right. There's an ideology involved. All kinds of polls show that the majority of Republicans and Democrats and gun owners all want to uh, shut down the availability of these um, uh, weapons that are designed for soldiers, not for citizens. And yet, the and we had a law like that for 10 years, and statistics show that mass shootings were way down and mass killings were way down as a result of that. But um, the truth is that the NRA is in bed with a corrupt political system, one that is more about raising money than it is about responding to um, people's needs and to creating policies that are sane and and real and uh, that's um, and common sense. So clearly, this is all about um, greed and money and wanting to stay in power, even if it means killing our children to do so. Well, and 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 just my opinion. I'm not speaking for you here. Uh, but I, I just uh, believe now, even beyond the money and the power, it's, it's you know, because uh, they do everything possible to prevent everyone from voting, which is about staying in power. But I think it's also about um, white supremacy, and um, they would rather have an autocracy or a theocracy um, you know, run by white men than they would a diverse democracy. And um, and they want to have the guns to be able to back that up. And I don't know, maybe I'm just getting paranoid, but um, I'm starting to really see that where I hadn't maybe, I don't know, six or seven years ago. Yeah. Well, I, I agree, of course. The white supremacy is the 
is uh, embedded into so much of that thinking. And they're not alone. I mean, they have a Supreme Court that um, uh, by allowing floods of money and dark money into the political process is asking for this kind of result. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I'll, I'll just say one last thing on this, and uh, then we'll get into what we were going to talk about today, your, your new book on uh, creation spirituality. Uh, but Tom Hartman had a, a great article out about, um, you know, the Republican president since Eisenhower that, uh, you know, when he points out how each Republican president has been taking us in a really bad direction. And uh, he, you know, he titles the article, you know, Republican presidents with treason in their hearts. And uh, at first I kind of raised an eyebrow and thought the article might have been extreme. But then when I actually read the content, um, I mean, the Democratic presidents just don't seem to go where Republican presidents do. And I think, um, you know, more people should uh, be aware of it because I'm, uh, some people didn't live through it and other people maybe didn't learn about it uh, where they attended school. So anyway, I'll just throw that out in case uh, folks want to Google Tom Hartman's article. But anyway, uh, sorry for uh, we got sidetracked there, but uh, yes, uh, audience, please go to Matthew's uh, Daily Meditations at uh, dailymeditationswithmatthewfox.org. So uh, your new book, um, Matthew, I have it in my hand here, a uh, beautiful book. I love you here on the cover, The Essential Writings on Creation Spirituality, uh, selected with an intro by Charles uh, Burak, and it's in the Modern Spiritual Masters series. Um, you know, for those who don't know uh, what creation spirituality is, I don't want them to confuse it with creationism. So while that might, uh, uh, you know, might sound silly to some folks, can you maybe say what creation spirituality is and, um, you know, and, uh, you know, with an eye toward, uh, how it's different from creationism. Well, I would say it's a mere opposite of creationism, which is, of course, a, a form of fundamentalism. Uh, it's a mere opposite for a lot of reasons. First of all, it's feminist, and uh, fundamentalism is uh, essentially patriarchal, and uh, the it's also um, very uh, committed to eco-justice, social justice, gender justice, racial justice, economic justice. And um, creationism is, um, again, fundamentalism tends to be um, uh, rigid and uh, uh, unbending in terms of uh, probing how we can change uh, human consciousness and history to include those who have been left out, if you will. And that includes women and gay and lesbian people and uh, people of color and the indigenous people and so forth. So Christ Mitchell is very committed to, to the prophetic tradition of justice. And, um, of course, creation spirituality does begin with creation. It begins with the fireball. And, of course, creationism ignores science, whereas creation spirituality... We work very closely with scientists. I've written 
two books with um, Rupert Sheldrake, a British biologist, and uh, one book with Brian Swim, who was on my faculty for many years. I've always had science, well, not always, but after about five years, when Brian came along, I had faculty in my scientists on my faculty always, so that's 45 years of the 50 years or so I was creating programs and teaching, because scientists um, tell us um, what creation is about, what's nature about, and how it works. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century said, a mistake about creation results in a mistake about God. So obviously then we should go to scientists, and he in the 13th century went to Aristotle, he was new in the West at that time and considered very radical because he was uh, a, quote, pagan, unquote. And because he came by way of Islam, uh, it was in Baghdad that they translated Aristotle into Latin, which therefore got into Europe in the 13th century. And, and because he was a scientist, the fundamentalists um, never considered nature important to study. It's as if all the answers are in a book, the Bible book. But Aquinas said, Revelation comes in two volumes, nature and the Bible. And so um, uh, this is a wisdom tradition of Israel, which, of course, wisdom is feminine around the world. She's feminine in the Bible, Sophia in Greek, and Chokmah in, Latin, in uh, Hebrew are feminine, and Kuan Yin is feminine, the wisdom figure of the East and so forth. So... Um, this is also the tradition of the historical Jesus, the wisdom tradition. The, the story is that he was considered illegitimate in his village and was not allowed in the synagogue on the Sabbath. So while others went to the synagogue to pray, he went out into nature to pray. And that's why so much of his teachings are based on very acute observations of nature. So... Um, uh, this is, I think, the tradition, the creation tradition, is an appropriate tradition for our time because it welcomes the return of the divine feminine and of, of women um, uh, finding their voice and stepping up so we can create a healthy gender balance between the feminine and the, the healthy masculine, not the unhealthy masculine, which obviously is reigning, patriarchy and the reptilian brain, both are out of control, and uh, so Christian spirituality is the tradition of these great mystics that I've been um, trying to um, recover and discover, such as Hildegard of Bingen, a genius of the 12th century who was ignored for centuries, and, um, and uh, Julian of Norwich, who lived through the worst pandemic ever in the West and uh, didn't fall into despair, but developed the entire theology of the goodness of nature. She says God is the goodness in nature. So she she kept her her spirits uh, alive and well during the bubonic plague, which destroyed between one out of two and one out of three people in Europe at the time, 14th century. So, um, and then of course discovering that the feminism in Meister Eckhart, and um, uh, he was. He was very involved with the Beguine movement of the Middle Ages, the women's movement of the Middle Ages. And um, uh, he was condemned by a very corrupt pope a week after he died. And um, But we're recovering him today, too. And even Thomas okay. Aquinas, I call him a proto-feminist because he was non-dualist. And dualism as well. And you've written, you, and you have other books out uh, about all of these other people as well. I do, I do. And then this 
new book you're talking about is kind of a compendium, kind of a collection of of, of pieces from my works, and those mystics are are treated certainly in the right. new book, the compendium book. Yeah. Well, I think you might have dropped some clues um, in 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 that. Uh less description of uh, creation spirituality, but uh, is there a story about how you actually came to discover it? Well, there is actually. I was I was studying in Paris, getting a doctorate in spirituality institute catholique in Paris, and um, one of my professors was Pierre Chenu, C-H-E-N-U, who was a French Dominican and a historian, and um, uh, a beautiful guy. He was 76 when I had him in class, and it turned out to be the last class he ever taught. He retired after that class. But in that class, he distinguished between the fall redemption tradition in Christianity, which begins with the fall. It begins with sin, and what Augustine called original sin, but no Jews ever heard of original sin. Original sin is not a Jewish concept, so it's not a biblical concept. Jesus never heard of original sin. But anyway, Augustine has original sin as a start, starting point. And I think everything's downhill from there. But the other starting point, as Shanu pointed out, is creation. And so if you look at Genesis, the first page of the Bible, Genesis 1, it doesn't mention sin or evil. That comes up in the, in the next chapters. It talks about the goodness of creation. Everything that's created is good. The sun is good and the moon is good and the trees is good and all this. And then at the very end of the Chapter 1, humanity comes on board, which really is interesting because that's the current scientific story, that humanity is very, very late after 13.8 billion years of ongoing creation. Humanity comes on, and, and the whole circle of, of creation is very good. So that's what I call original blessing, and that was the title of one of my books, um, the best-selling book, I, I guess, and uh, it kind of blew the roof off the Vatican at the time, not the current pope, but the other two popes were not at home with the concept of original blessing, which is another word for original goodness. But that's mm-hmm. the biblical tradition. And uh, it's been missed by all these theologians who want to begin with sin. Sin is invented by humans. You know, uh, Thomas Merton, the great Catholic monk, said, every non-two-legged creature is a saint. <laughs> So that means your dog is a saint, your cat is a saint, your horse is a saint, and every tree is a saint. And uh, you can go on and on about the holiness of things. It's humans who introduce a sin and moral evil into, the, into history. So uh, yeah. we should begin where God began, with the goodness of creation. Then we'll be empowered, yeah. to maybe, to do something about our shadow side. Yeah. Well, and, and would you say that uh, man's creation of sin was just another strategy for uh, control and power over? Well, sure. I mean, take that early story in, in Genesis about Cain and Abel, you know, two brothers, one of whom killed his brother out of out of jealousy and envy and all the rest, you know, attitudes that are still going strong. Uh, look at Putin. Well, why is Putin yeah. invading Ukraine? I think he's envious. Frankly, that's the bottom line is his envy. And, uh, and, of course, envy is part of the reptilian brain because the reptilian brain is about uh, not just action, reaction, but I win and you lose. That the reptilian brain consciousness cannot tolerate 
um, the sharing. It cannot tolerate partnership. And instead it wants to dominate. It's about domination. And um, yeah. that's at the heart of so much of uh, human travail and, and uh, yeah. history and certainly patriarchy. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned the Vatican, and, um, you know, for those who might be new to you, uh, they might not know you had a little run-in with the Vatican. Um, is, is there, would you like to say a little bit about that? Because I think it was your stand on uh, indigenous people and feminists that uh, kind of maybe got you in some hot water with some previous popes. That's true. Um the list of objections to my work, number one was that I'm a feminist theologian. I didn't know that was a heresy, but I guess they thought so. That would be uh, Cardinal Ratzinger and Pope John Paul II working together, bringing the Inquisition back. The second objection was I called God Mother, even though I, I've proven that all these medieval mystics called God Mother, and especially Julian of Norwich. She develops the whole concept much deeper and richer than anyone until the late 20th century. And the third objection was that I call God child. Well, I don't know what they do on Christmas, but uh, that to me is an example of adultism. They think God is the oldest one around or something. But Meister Eckhart, the great 13th century mystic, says um, uh, God is novissimus, the newest thing in the universe. So I think that's God is a great big baby, (laughs) the newest thing in the universe. And he also says um, that, uh, he says, I'm younger today than I was yesterday. If I'm not younger tomorrow than I am today, I'd be ashamed of myself. So the youthfulness of spirit, he says that spirit always brings youthfulness and newness with it. Then the objection that I don't condemn gay people and the objection that I, I quote, work too closely with Native Americans, unquote. So to me, those objections are, have nothing to do with theology. They are Rorschach tests on what really stirs the, um, the, um, the shadow or the fears um, of, uh, of those last two popes. And obviously it's women and it's children and it's indigenous people. And, and uh, um, Starhawk was on my faculty for years and that kept them up at night at the Vatican. I told her one day, I said, you know, every time I get a, a nasty letter from the Vatican, they always mention that I have a witch on my faculty. And she said, well, I don't know why they, I'm threatening them so much. She said, we didn't burn any of them at the stake. So I think that was pretty well. <laughs> oh, wow. That, that's, I, I like that. I, I, I really do. Well, you know, I remember when the uh, Avatar, the first movie came out, uh, people were so taken with the beauty of nature and that whole spiritual thread that that ran through that movie. I remember the Pope at the time um, actually had uh, uh, a spokesperson for him come out and say, nature will never replace religion. I mean, they seem very thin-skinned. Uh, and, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, it, it wouldn't take much to upset their apple cart, you know, in their theology. They were obviously very afraid of you, and uh, it felt like they were very afraid of the message in that movie. Wow, I hadn't heard that story before, but that's a humdinger. Um, yeah. Nature of the religion, well, maybe it should. 
But, you know, uh, the current Pope, he he wrote a wonderful uh, encyclical, Laudate Si, on defending Mother Earth. And uh, he uses that phrase, Mother Earth, and so forth. And, in fact, the person who wrote it, 80% of it, was a student of me. went through my master's program in Korean spirituality, an Irish priest who lives in the Philippines, works in the Philippines. But, ah, Sean McDonough, but... um, so this new pope is, sees sees the world differently, but you're right. Original blessing. I learned when they so overreacted to my book, Original Blessing, um, that how invested they are in original sin, and I think we have mm. to understand that to understand a patriarchy and pessimism. You know, Otto Rank, the great psychologist, says pessimism comes from a repression of creativity, and I think the fear of creativity, of course, is on on the mind of every fascist thinker all patriarchy is afraid of of something new being born and uh right. wants to control the art and they look at this book burnings and well not quite burning yet but book book condemnation happening in florida about um you know, from the from the governor there and um setting a tone for other states as well to uh repress some of the best writers in um, in our culture, um, and especially if they're black or gay, so um, this whole issue of original sin versus original blessing is clearly something that really got under the skin of um, two popes. And again, one thing I learned was how um, how invested they are in Augustine's idea of original sin. And of course, Augustine was famous for his dualism. And was very afraid of women. He lived with a woman for 13 years and had a baby. But um, he he's the one who said, man but not woman is made in the image and likeness of God. And he also said, spirit is whatever is not matter. So he was so dualistic. You can't get any more dualistic than that. But these other right. mystics who I celebrate, some of whom are also canonized saints like Thomas Aquinas and so forth. Aquinas said, "Spirit is the elan and the vitality in everything. So, in, in a blade of grass, in a horse, in a tree, in us. So, spirit and matter are not at odds. They are. Um, they feed one another and uh, bless one another. And that's, I think, the real step out of patriarchy is to accept that non-dualistic attitude toward." toward reality and towards matter. And, uh, of course, the word matter in Latin, it comes from the word for mother, materia, and mater, same words. So, uh, it, again, it's a re- the repressed um, um, love of the feminine that comes up in a dangerous way, unconsciously, as a, a, f- a form of oppression of women and yeah. others, uh, including Mother Earth herself. Well, and I'm thinking too, you know, uh, you you talk about, you know, creativity um, and, you know, what's the first thing to go in schools when money's tight? You know, it's the arts. And could it be, I mean, I'm I'm obviously, you know, not a trained psychologist, but I know when, you know, someone is in the, in the middle of creating something new, uh, their, their mind kind of goes into this zone, you know, if you will. And um, and maybe that's the fear, 
you know, that we can transcend the mundane uh, and the status quo and take ourselves to a place that's dangerous for these small-minded thinkers. And, um, you know, and, 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 you know, they don't want people to go there. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And that's one reason that in all my pedagogy, we do art as meditation classes. So we have play as meditation or dance as meditation or, or music as meditation or painting as meditation. So because everybody has this capacity to give birth and to, um, to develop the imagination. But as you say, um, those who want to control things do not, do not want that development to under to under to happen to undergo. Um, there's a story I, I tell people. Years ago, I was lecturing in New Hampshire, and driving in from the airport, I was told that the the new school board was dominated by fundamentalists, and that their first decree of the new school board in that area was that henceforth no teacher in public school could use the word imagination in the classroom. And I couldn't believe it. I said, please repeat that. And then I said, well, why? Why are they so afraid of imagination? Well, they said, they said these people say that the devil is in the imagination. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, everything's in the imagination plus one, plus something is not being conceived of. So God is in the imagination and angels in the imagination. But uh, here they felt they could control. They had to control imagination. And I think that is at the heart of just what you've said. It's at the heart of all fascism and of all authoritarianism. And even you, you can feel it in these current efforts to ban books and schools, but also in um, white nationalism. They can't imagine a black president, you see. And when one came mm-hmm. along, it was just too much for their imagination, and that, which was, of course, <laughs> grounded in racism and, um, and uh, the Confederacy. And so they, they're overreacting. So I think that, that you know, the whole thing about um, uh, um, M.C. Richards, the wonderful potter and also painter and philosopher, she was on the faculty for years, but he wrote the book Centering. And it's marvelous, a classic work on how centering clay on a wheel is, like, is centering your whole psyche. And uh, it's, you got to keep it moving got to keep things moving to make it bring everything together, all the parts. And uh, it's like some of these people, they don't want to move. They want to freeze things. And in doing so, they leave parts of themselves aside, parts of their souls aside. And then they, be, they become set up for hatred and anger and fury and uh, yeah. resentment. And then politicians come along and, and make hay on that, especially the resentment part. Right. Well, you know, you're you're making me think about um, uh, the Egyptian goddess Isis and also Hathor uh, mm-hmm. and Bast. Those three Egyptian goddesses had an instrument called the sistrum, and uh, they were the only three that, to my knowledge, that used the sistrum. And Herodotus said that when they shook the sistrum, the energies of the universe continued to flow. And uh, I don't know, I, what I'm, I'm connecting the dots here, thinking that 
Um, of course, you know, mother, mater, uh, creation, uh, the sacred feminine, they, they don't want us to be stagnant. They want us to continue to evolve and grow and transform. And that's a pretty scary thing for people that want to live inside of a little box. Uh, but I like that idea of, you know, um, the goddess not wanting humanity to become stagnant. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in, you know it, 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 it feels so appropriate, uh, you know, to, to these people who want to oppress or regress mm-hmm. or, um, you know, just can't see a, a future different from anything they've known. Mm-hmm. Oh, so well said, so well said. And, of course, this helps to explain their antipathy toward evolution, too, and toward science. So when science mm-hmm. is saying, you know, things come and go, forms come and go, um, they evolve, this is how history works, they freak out, you see, and they want to freeze it and say that creation is 6,000 years old, not 13.8 billion years old, and so forth. But when you mention ISIS, it rings a bell with me about the Black Madonna, who's definitely coming back in our time. And she is a is a, uh, a Christian symbol, if you will, of ISIS, uh, and it was that's really the origin of the tradition of the Black Madonna, and um, uh, Black Madonna stands for both the celebration of life, but also for um, uh, the poor and the oppressed and the the compassion, the need for compassion. Yeah, and and as they say, she stood by the outlaws in Christianity. She was not standing mm-hmm. for the system, which is, is rigid, yeah. and was built on rigidity in the Middle Ages. Their, their cosmology came from the Greeks, and the Greeks felt that the planets and all were, were fixed. It was frozen. And that is, again, why, why Darwin's uh, breakthrough was so profound, that it shook up this notion of, of fixed fixity and stagnancy, as you say, versus um, a process and organ and, you know, like an organism, the growth. And now this is all that the universe is about, that it's all growing. So it's permission to carry this more feminine uh, attitude toward life that creativity is everything, that, that things are being birthed all the time. You know, a star is being born every 15 seconds, but you know, Eckhart, way back in the Middle Ages, thought this way. He said, "He said the essence of everything is is relation, and that everything is in flux." And um, so, you know, there have been mystics who've who've caught on to this lesson, uh, even before the scientists articulated it for us. But in any case, this is the time we're living now in a postmodern consciousness, and we're all invited to bring forth that power of creativity, what I call the via creativa, the, the, the source of, and I wrote a whole book on creativity, and, and my point is that, like you said, it takes you to another zone. Yeah, it's a mystical experience. When we're in a creative state, we're not looking at our watches, we're not wondering about what time it is, we're, we're beyond time, you're in another state where it's so joyful to be giving birth that um, you're not um, bogged down by the by the everyday problems of life. And that's why artist meditation is a wonderful way to, um, to, to meditate. And also, it is, according to the psychologist, Naranjo and Ornstein, the way of the prophets. 
that all the prophets, including Jesus, were creative people, and they 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 broke through the stagnation of consciousness that in turn gives stagnation to institutions. I mean, look at what Gandhi did. Look at what King did. You know that they they were artists social artists organizing the anger of the people the outrage of the people to make it effective to make it a work of art to overturn segregation or to, or to, to rid india of british colonialism um those were great accomplishments and um they, they were forms of art social art yeah organizing the people yeah. Well, and and you think about uh, how often it's been described when someone is in that creative zone, it's almost as if they're receiving a download, you know, uh, a, a download Absolutely. of uh, of information, of, of creativity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, well, Matthew, we need to take a quick break, uh, but when we come back, uh, I want to talk to you about uh, your angels' experience and also the difference between uh, spirit, being spiritual and being religious. Uh, but first, uh, we have a word from Joe Carson. This is from Jonathan Nightshade, a Gardnerian high priest of the Whitecroft line, a traditional craft practitioner and researcher writing about Joe Carson's book, Celebrate Wildness, Magic, Mirth, and Love on the Feriferia Path. I love this book, how special this work is, and how appreciated. As someone who was young in the 1970s, and through the years, only found snippets of information on Feriferia, one of the first modern pagan paths, this book comes as an artistic revelation of the core practices of the way of the goddess and gods, reborn for the next age of the Divine Maiden. She has clearly introduced the historical background, philosophy and ritual practices of the joyous wilderness mysteries of the fairy faith, illuminated by the marvelous pagan art of Feriferia's founder, Fred Adams. I was very pleased that the high-quality production of this oversized volume makes it a collectible work of art, as well as a testament to the visionary philosophy of Fred Adams. I feel blessed that I received a copy. I will treasure it and look forward to the next book for more of the deep philosophy and ritual practice of Feriferia. Celebrate Wildness is a dense, art book quality, hardcover book. You can get it for just $45 from the Feriferia website at feriferia.org. That's F-E-R-A-F-E-R-I-A dot org. Well, if you're just tuning in, uh, this is Karen Tate, and uh, my guest today is Matthew Fox, and uh, we're talking about his new book on uh, creation spirituality. And if you stay with me toward the end of the interview, uh, we'll have part four of uh, Why Women Need the Goddess. So, um, Matthew, uh, spiritual versus religious. Uh, I know the Pew Institute uh, is talking about how churches are on the decline. People would rather consider themselves uh, spiritual uh, rather than religious. Um, when you describe the difference, do you think maybe there's a clue in there why? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, religion tends to be a sociological phenomenon about structures 
and uh, institutions, church buildings, and keeping them heated and <laughs> cooled and and uh, uh, without roofy leaks and so forth, or leaky roofs, <laughs> um, and hierarchy and dogmas and doctrines. And just like we were talking about earlier, this theme of um, rigidity versus fluidity or process is, is a big happening in our consciousness today. And because things are breaking down uh, at this time, our versions of education are not working. Uh, the structures of law, I don't think there's one profession today that's in a healthy place. All our professions are breaking down. And so um, religion that is stuck is, um, is not appealing to people, especially young people. They're not invested in the attitudes, uh, including dogmatism, that is frozen, that is part of frozen religion. But spirituality, of course, is, is the essence of religion. Spirituality is about the inner self. It is about our capacity for mysticism, which is our yes to life, and our capacity for um, the prophetic or the, the warrior uh, dimension, which is our no to life, to, to um, that which interferes with life, like the shooting of children that we started out talking about. And so uh, a deep yes and a deep no, that's the essence of spirituality. And the union and communion with the divine, what uh, Otto Rank, the psychologist, called the unio mystica, the mystical union, which he feels we had as children, and even in the womb we had it. But that um, when we leave the womb, there's this great separation from that serenity, that tranquility, that union, uh, and communion with the mother, and it's a big shock to us. And he thinks that all the big shocks that come later in our life are really echoes. They're the same bell ringing, that bell of separation. He talks about the original wound, not original sin. He's a, a Jew, and Jews don't think about original sin. Ellie uh, Weiss said original sin is alien to Jewish thinking. But original wound, that's very interesting, that we are wounded by the separation from this profound union we once had with our mothers, and that is what is recovered, he says, in the unio mystica, the mystical union, which happens through art and through love, he says. And oh. um, uh, so so that's what what spirituality is about, the inner self. That's how St. Paul talks about it, the inner person. And today our word for it is the true self versus the false self. The false self is trying to please others. It's, it's externally determined, whereas the inner self is our, our deepest self, our truest self. And, um, and that is our, our, our mystical experiences awaken us to that. Uh, Julian Norris called it oneing, O-N-E-I-N-G. It's a oneing with the divine, but it's a oneing with all things. And it's a oneing with ourselves are becoming truly um, uh, at home with who we are and at home in this universe so that psyche meets cosmos. That's what real ritual, Adorank says, is all about, is connecting the human psyche to the cosmos again. And that's why Stonehenge happened, and that's why Newgrange happened, and, and 
we are related. And today with Hub Telescope, well, we are connecting to the universe in all new and beautiful ways and learning all kinds of wondrous, uh, miraculous, uh, um, awesome uh, encounters with the universe. But do you think, though, Matthew, um, while we might be better connected because we have these, you know, like you said, the telescope and all of this, we have the scientific knowledge. Um, I mean, I've recently met some uh, atheist friends who are just so detached or separated from the idea of of any sort of uh, mysticism or communion with anything out there. Um, You know, it it, it feels like there's a friction there, if you will, you know, that that we can maybe be closer to it on some level, but there's still maybe a resistance to, um, I don't know, a coming together. Well, again, um, Mysticism is not um, just a connection to what's out there because what's out there is in here, literally. Our True. history and our, our DNA is born of the universe. You know, as you know, we run the film of the universe backwards 13 billion years, and it was all smaller than a zygote when it began. So the outside is the inside, and the inside is the outside. Um, but I do think we all have to look in as well and and this is where the examination of our own being and our own intentions and our own value system that we that we pick up and that we evolve and that we reject and that we give birth to is part of the creativity isn't it what values are we going to follow what as king said what what's worth dying for and um so the it is that union and communion with with all things st paul talks about Christ being all in all. And um, the Buddha talks that way too, that there's this divine light that connects everything inside and what is supposedly outside. I say supposedly because if we can think about these pictures we're receiving from from Webb Telescope, we're part of those uh, original galaxies that we're picking pictures up on um, about. So it, it really... Our souls are so big, they can encompass the whole universe as far as we know it. And clearly our bodies are carrying 13.8 billion years of history, literally, because our hydrogen and helium atoms were birthed in the the fireball 13 billion years ago. So it's all connected already, really, in many ways. Yeah, that whole we are stardust idea. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. so, um, yeah. well, I, 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 well, thank you, you know, thank you for that, and um, I, and I don't know, you just gave me another layer, um, you know, to, to this idea. Yeah, I mean, when I was researching the Normalizing Abuse book, which um, you so graciously wrote the foreword to, and you know, thank you again for that. Um, you know, one of the things that I was researching was. Um, how a, a child's trauma begins in the womb and, you know, when the mother goes through contractions. And, you know, and there's this, there was this scientific ideas about how, um, you know, it, it sort of uh, sets the child up for, you know, being predisposed to, uh, you know, 
trauma that they might encounter, you know, as they grow up, you know, sort of like the first trauma they're exposed to. But what you just described, that separation, um, and, and what, what did that uh, person you were referring to, what did they call it again? The, um, you know, when, yes. Original yeah, wound. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. the original yeah. wound. Mm-hmm. That seems yes. like another layer uh, to to that uh, you know to that maybe psychological or physical trauma that yes. the you know that the baby experiences uh, you know during the birth process. So um, th- thank you for that. That's uh, I, I find that really yes. interesting. Um, so no. angels, um, uh, tell me about your experience with angels and uh, you obviously must believe they're real and have a purpose well um i wrote a book called the physics of angels several years ago with uh rupert sheldrake the british biologist and i think he's the first scientist in 400 years to have the, the guts to write a book on angels and um uh, what we did was we we took three great um Teachers about angels, Hildegard of Bingen is one, and um, Dennis Ariapagite, who lived in the 6th century, a Syrian monk, is another, and then Thomas Aquinas from the 13th century was a third. And so um, we diet, we would take uh, paragraphs from each of these writers about angels and then the dialogue about it back and forth. And, of course, Rupert was bringing in today's science. And one point he made that really stunned me, because I had not heard it before, was that when Darwin developed his concept of evolution, he did so with another British scientist uh, named Alfred Russell Wallace. And they were very close, uh, worked together very closely on our concept of evolution. And when they presented for the very first time to the Scientific Society in London, uh, they gave back-to-back papers about it. And so they were close for years, but then they had a, a breakup. They broke up. They had a divorce over one question. Uh, Wallace said it's impossible, given the uh, finite time of the Earth, planet Earth, that certain evolutionary breakthroughs happened just by chance or by um, um, uh, a process of the survival of the fittest. Uh, he said there must have been intelligent agents guiding the process of evolution. And the traditional word for that is an angel. Well, mm-hmm. Wallace broke with, with Darwin over that. We've all heard of Darwin. No one's heard of Wallace. And the um, thing is, Wallace was from the lower classes. Darwin was from the upper classes. Darwin knew how to manipulate the press. And um, either in, uh, Wallace did not or he didn't care. But in, in any case... Um, I found that terribly interesting that the very origins of evolutionary theory uh, came from a, a scientist who who concluded scientifically they had to have been angels. They had to have been um, guided intelligences throughout this this process of evolution. So that's one of the big lessons I learned from, from this research with Rupert. But I also met this woman, Lorna Byrne, B-Y-R-N-E. I don't know if you've heard of her, but she's a peasant Irish woman who, uh, from the age of two, 
had experiences with angels, and they told her, don't tell anyone what we're telling you until we give you the word. And it was only in her 60s that they said, okay, now you can um, tell the world about this. Lorna Byrne was actually um, illiterate. And um, growing up in the west of Ireland, she had dyslexia, and the doctors there told her parents that she was, quote, an idiot, unquote, and would never learn how to read, so don't even try to teach her. But anyway, she had these many experiences with angels, and I interviewed her at Grace Cathedral in San Francisco several years ago, and 1,300 people showed up because she has a web page, and she has written, well, I shouldn't say written books, dictated books, because she does not write, but uh, obviously people are reading her books. And one of the things she taught me was this. She said, there are a lot of unemployed angels in the world today. And I said, oh, my God, I so know, many, I know so many unemployed people. This was at the last <laughs> session. And, um, well, she said, this is the deal. She said, God knows how much trouble humans are in today and is pouring angels on earth to help humans, but no one's asking them for help. So there's all these unemployed angels wandering around. You've got to ask them for help. And um, what Aquinas says about angels is that they can help but love. They cannot help but love, he says. And, of course, they are very intelligent beings and intuitive. They learn only by intuition, he says. And so that is why when we're being creative, and you and I were talking about creativity earlier, Angels often show up. In fact, we have a word for that, the word muse, from which we get the word music and museum and all kinds of other words. Uh, the word muse is about an angel um, involved in the, in the uh, creative process. And um, so also, like, you look at Western art, there are an awful lot of artists who painted angels, uh, Leonardo da Vinci and all kinds of people. But um, I think it's because Angels do show up when we're being creative. And as you said, you're in another zone. Yeah, you're in a zone with, with angels. They also come in our, to our dreams, and that's an ancient uh, awareness found in the Bible very much, but also in Native American traditions and Egyptian lore and so forth. And, um, but if they learn only by intuition, that means when we're being intuitive, when we're paying attention and developing our own intuition, that these spirit beings... Um, assist us and can assist us. So um, uh, these are a few examples, I think, of angels in our in our presence, and um, it behooves us, I think, to call on them because humanity today, today needs all the help it can get, and uh, wow. that there are other beings from other dimensions. This is believed in all cultures and all religions in the world. They all have stories about spirits or angels. Wow. Well, uh, Matthew, I think that's an incredibly positive note to end our interview on. Uh, I can barely believe it. We've spoken for an hour already. <laughs> um, and I've, I've so enjoyed the conversation as always. And I think we have to start thinking about those unemployed angels out there and get them to work, uh, helping, uh, helping us uh, fix this world and manifest a new normal. There you go. Yes. Well, thank you, Karen. Thanks for having this program. And the time went rapidly, as you said. And, of course, I tell my students, that's one sign you've just had a mystical experience when you say, where did the time go? So that's a good thing. 
<laughs> yes, and uh, thank you, Matthew. And uh, again, listeners, uh, Matthew has so many books out there. Uh, uh, please just Google him. But uh, the one we were talking about today was uh, Essential Writings on Creation Spirituality. And uh, you can also catch a lot of other interviews I've done with Matthew over the years. He's at uh, my website, KarenTate.net, uh, under Archived Wisdom. Uh, we have his interviews in a very special place on my website website along with some other um, uh, foremothers and, uh, and wisdom showers uh, like Matthew. So Matthew, thank you again so much for your time and um, for all you've done for us um, uh, humble humans out here and you know, trying to help us evolve and uh, figure out uh, what life is all about. Thank you. There you go. Thank you, Kate, for your work too. All right. And, and this new book. On, on normalizing abuse. Very important topic. Yes. Thank you. Bye Thank now. you, Matthew. I, I really appreciate it. And, uh, and you're doing the forward as well. It was very gracious. Thank you. All right. Well, um, we ran a little bit long there, but it was definitely worthwhile. Uh, and uh, as promised, I want to get to part four of uh, why women need the goddess. The last few weeks, we've covered the first three reasons. Um, and the first was... Um, uh, the affirmation and uh, legitimization of uh, female power as beneficent. It was also the affirmation of the female body and its life cycles. Uh, the third last week was the affirmation of women's will. And today we're going to cover uh, the affirmations of women's bonds with one another and their positive female heritage. Uh, now, this uh, all comes from Carol Chris. This is not my original writings, uh, but Carol has been on the show uh, a number of times uh, before she left, um, you know, this, uh, this mortal plane. And um, she's also one of the wisdom keepers, and uh, that's in the archived wisdom section of my website. Uh, interviews that uh, I've done with uh, Carol over the years can be found uh, there as well. Uh, so, uh, and you can find this essay of hers if you just Google Why Women Need the Goddess by Carol P. Christ. Uh, but we're going to go ahead and um, cover uh, the fourth reason. And... Um, the fourth and final aspect of goddess symbolism, she says, uh, she'll discuss here is the significance of the goddess for a revaluation of women's bonds and heritage. As Virginia Woolf has said, Chloe liked Olivia, a statement about a woman's relation to another woman, and a sentence that really, rarely occurs in fiction. Men have written the stories, and they have written about women almost exclusively in their relation to men. The celebrations of women's bonds to each other as mothers and daughters, as colleagues and co-workers, as sisters, friends, and lovers, is beginning to occur in the new literature and culture created by women in the women's movement. While I believe that the revaluing of each of these bonds is important, I will focus on the mother-daughter bond, in part because I believe it may be the key to the others. Adrian Rich has pointed out that the mother-daughter bond, perhaps the most important of women's bonds, quote, 
resonant with charges, the flow of energy between two biologically alike bodies, one of which is laying in amniotic bliss inside the other, one of which has labored to give birth to the other, unquote, is rarely celebrated in patriarchal religion and culture. Christianity celebrates the father's relation to the son and the mother's relation to the son, but the story of the mother and daughter is missing. So too, in patriarchal literature and psychology, the mothers and daughters rarely exist. Volumes have been written about the pedal complex, but little has been written about the girl's relation to her mother. Moreover, as de Beauvoir has noted, the mother-daughter relation is distorted in patriarchy because the mother must give her daughter over to men in a male-defined culture in which women are viewed as inferior. The mother must socialize her daughter to be subordinate to men, and if her daughter challenges patriarchal norms, the mother is likely to defend the patriarchal structures against her own daughter. These patterns are changing in the new culture created by women in which the bonds of women to women are beginning to be celebrated. Holly Near has written several songs that celebrate women's bonds and women's heritage. In one of her finest songs, she writes of an old-time woman who is waiting to die. A young woman feels for the life that has passed the old woman by and begins to cry, but the old woman looks her in the eye and says, if I had not suffered, you wouldn't be wearing those jeans. Being an old-time woman ain't as bad as it seems. This song, which Nir has said was inspired by her grandmother, expresses and celebrates a bond and a heritage passed down from one woman to another. In another of Nir's songs, she sings of a hiking boot mother who's seeing the world for the first time with her own little girl. In this song, the mother tells the drifter who has been traveling with her to pack up and travel alone if he thinks traveling three is a drag because I've got a little one who loves me as much as you need me and darling, that's loving enough. The song is significant because the mother places her relationship to her daughter above her relationship to a man, something women rarely do in patriarchy. Almost the almost the only story story of mother and daughters that has been transmitted in Western culture is the myth of Demeter and Persephone. That was the basis of religious rites celebrated by women only. The Thesmophoria, uh, and later formed the basis of the Eleusian Mysteries, which were open to all who spoke Greek. In this story, the daughter, Persephone, is raped away from her mother, Demeter, by the god of the underworld. Unwilling to accept the state of affairs, Demeter rages and withholds fertility from the earth until her daughter is returned to her. What is important for women in this story is that a mother fights for her daughter and for her relation to her. This is completely different from the mother's relation to her daughter in patriarchy. The mood created by the story of Demeter and Persephone is one of celebration of the mother-daughter bond, and the motivation is for mothers and daughters to affirm their heritage passed from mother to daughter and to reject the patriarchal patterns where the primary loyalties of mother and daughter must be to man.
the symbol of goddess has much to offer women who are struggling to be rid of the powerful, pervasive, and long-lasting moods and motivations of devaluation of female power, denigration of the female body, distrust of female will, and the denial of women's bonds and heritage that have been engendered by patriarchal religion. As women struggle to create a new culture in which women's power, bodies, will, and bonds are celebrated, it is natural that the goddess would reemerge as symbol of the newfound beauty, strength, and power of women. What a great note to end that essay on. I, um, I, I can't encourage you uh, anymore, uh, you know, uh, to go and print this out, have it for yourself, uh, teach it to the women you know, to the young women that you know, to uh, all the children, because these uh, are important points uh, for us to know and embrace if we really intend to create a new normal in the world. Well, um, today I am going to leave you uh, with with some thoughts on um, my new book that uh, I mentioned during the conversation with Matthew, which he so graciously uh, wrote the foreword for. And the new book uh, is Normalizing Abuse. And if you flip to the back cover, it says, do you make excuses and rationalize abuse because it's so familiar that you discount it as being normal? Well, many of us may be enduring some kind of pervasive abuse or or witness to it and may not even be aware of it. We're being bombarded from so many different directions that we may have become blind to it. The abuse almost feels normal. We might sense something is not right, yet the problem is not apparent. That could be because abuse and resulting trauma is not always blatant or obvious. It can be collective, insidious, and pervasive. We may also be conditioned to it so deeply that it is no longer recognized as abuse by the victims, perpetrators, and greater society. My book, uh, titled Normalizing Abuse, a Commentary on the Culture of Pervasive Abuse, was written by me, Karen Tate, an abuse survivor, examining some of the countless ways blatant and pervasive abuse is being acculturated and present in so many aspects of our lives today. It offers some reasons why he, we have become so accepting of the abuse and offers suggestions to help recognize pervasive abuse all around us. It is a synthesis of observation, shared anecdotal real-life stories, and information examining acculturated pervasive abuse in the hopes that we might better recognize it and the trauma that could result from it. We need to stop normalizing or accepting abuse because it is unhealthy and potentially devastating. We need to stop burying our collective heads in the sand. Normalizing abuse should no longer be an option. You know, I considered myself a savvy and educated and uh, feminist and advocate for peace, fairness, and equality. I thought abuse was something that happened to others, not me, but it was happening to me. I was asleep at the wheel. I didn't see the danger signs as my life careened off the road. 
abuse and the resulting trauma can happen to anyone, regardless of age, race, gender, identity, beliefs, and economic status. We have to examine all aspects of our lives for both blatant and insidious abuse. We must recognize it and take steps to eradicate abuse from our lives and from society. And that's why I wrote Normalizing Abuse. And I talk about abuse that's happening in society and culture, among family and friends, in academia, in the workplace, uh, in the media, in government, in the military, um, did I say in academia, uh, in, in religion, uh, in all phases of our life. Those are just some of them. Uh, I talk about the whistleblowers who uh, have brought these abuses and exploitations to our attention. Um, I put on my social scientist hat uh, and delve deep into why humans do the things that they do so we might understand our human behavior written in a very easy to understand form. And finally, I do offer um, lots of different ways uh, after we find the courage to open our eyes to this abuse and exploitation, many ways that we can start to create a plan uh, so that we can set a new strategy uh, for our personal lives and our lives out there in society and in our greater culture. So I hope you'll uh, go take a look at it. Uh, it's called Normalizing Abuse. It's uh, gotten a lot of great um, reviews, which you can see there on Amazon. Um, or uh, please go to my website, uh, karentate.net, and you will uh, just click on the picture of the book, Normalizing Abuse, and um, it will take you to a lot of those reviews and more about the book. So uh, that about does it uh, for me today. Uh, we've gone a little bit long, but uh, I think it was all good stuff. So I will be with you uh, again next Wednesday at 11 o'clock. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. I know you have lots of choices, and I really appreciate your listener loyalty. So as always, uh, in an homage to Sekhmet, Our Lady of Tenacity Manifested, who teaches us to set healthy boundaries, to say no without guilt, to have strength and courage, um, we'll close with Am Sekhmet by Zingaya. I'm sorry, by Abigail Spinner McBride. <laughs>